Listener Production. Hello and welcome to the Weekend Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers. I'm going to be in the hot seat this weekend. I'm normally on the weekday briefing, but Jamila has COVID. Uh, Remember COVID. It feels like so many people are getting that right now and our love goes to Jamila for a very swift recovery. A bit of a warning before we begin that this episode raises some issues of self-harm. So if you or someone you know feels a bit triggered by this, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and there is always someone ready to take your call. Georgie Purcell was elected to the Victorian Legislative Council in November last year and she is already shaking up the house. The 30-year-old MP, who's from the Animal Justice Party, represents Northern Victoria, but her story is so much bigger than that. She stands out from other politicians because she chose to take a different route to the parliament. She worked as a stripper and a topless waitress to pay her way through her uni law degree. We talk all about this, her history, what it's like to be a 30-year-old tattooed woman in an institution that's, let's face it, renowned for its pretty boring conservative approach to government. Up next, we have The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. Helen Smith will be giving you all of the recommendations this week. But first, let's get into my interview with Georgie Purcell. Georgie Purcell, thank you for joining us on The Weekend Briefing. Now, I've heard you said before that life and in particular your life has been made up of a series of defining moments and what has surprised me in diving into your backstory was that the first of those defining moments which was a big one happened when you were just four years old tell us what happened then Yeah, that's correct. So I was four years old when I was living in a small regional town just outside of Geelong uh, in Victoria where I am and I saw a truck full of pigs and I think that kids just have this, I guess, um, ideal sort of sense of the world and what's right and what's wrong and I asked my parents where they were going and they told me and I just said in a very calm, firm way, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And I wasn't like upset about it. I just thought it was wrong. And they really thought it was a phase for me, but it turns out that it wasn't. And um, I stuck with those values, you know, throughout my childhood. And I guess now I apply them at work as a job. And what sort of things did you decide that you weren't going to do anymore as a kid? Yeah, so when I found out where um, Meese came from, I didn't even really know like the details or what went on in factory farms or slaughterhouses across the country just by knowing that it was an animal and I had this really uh, strong connection to animals as a young person. You know, they were my uh, source of companionship and joy and comfort. Even though I'd never interacted with pig before in my life, I just watched Babe and uh they were sort of strongly in my mind and I knew how smart and curious and playful they were and I just said I didn't want to eat them anymore. It was in the 90s, so, you know, it's not like a long, long time ago, but I guess it wasn't as common back then. It's, you know, very common now. Everyone knows vegetarians and vegans Um, and particularly in a regional area as well. It was far less common. I mean, the town I grew up in, one of the major 
sources of employment was working in farming. So um, I had a different view to a lot of the people I grew up around, which is probably, you know, a crit with the skills to do the work that I'm doing now really as a politician, being able to make my um, views and my point known in a way that you can disagree with other people. Growing up in that regional community, how were your family with this decision? I mean, I I know a lot of um, kids and teenagers go through, it's normally a phase, quote unquote, where they go, you know what, I'm not going to eat this and I'm going to do this and dye my hair black and whatever. But your family sounded like they were quite supportive of you. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for. I hear a lot of stories from people my age now that have connected with me through my work that have said they wanted to do the same thing when they were young as well and their parents didn't let them or didn't think it was a good idea. Mine were completely supportive and they love to say to me uh, it's because they knew that they couldn't tell me no, that when I decided I wanted to do something, I wasn't going to do it in halves, that I had to do it. And yeah, they love to say that it's no surprise that I ended up where I I am now because once I decide to do something, I do it in a really big way. So they accepted it. I think they thought it was probably a phase, but it wasn't because I think it really uh, gave me that sense of justice and wanting to create change, um, whether that be for animals or any other sort of vulnerable section of the community. Who did you get that fire in your belly from? Was it watching your mum and dad? Were they active in the community? I mean, is there somebody in your family who really kind of instilled in you that A, you could create change and B, you had it in you to knock down doors until that change happened? Yeah, I think there's quite a few people in my life that have contributed to giving me that fire in my belly and my parents were definitely two of those people. We grew up in a household, I wouldn't call it political in the sense that it it wasn't party political, but it was political in the sense that my parents, I guess, never saw me as too young to learn about issues that were important to them and issues that affected other people. So I grew up in a house learning about asylum seekers and refugees and treatment of animals and the fact that I'm very lucky and the fact that I'm very privileged was always drilled into me and that other people don't necessarily have that and that we need to use that privilege to create change and to speak up and um, advocate for others. So they were definitely part of it. Uh, and then I had some great women role models in my life. I, My auntie in particular was one of them who was older than me. She was like a, she was a teenager and then early in her 20s when I was sort of at that young age learning about who I was and what I believed in. And she would be out, you know, doing activism, getting involved in politics. And I looked after her and thought she was really, really cool and being able to um, actually achieve outcomes for people and the environment and for animals. And I wanted to be just like that as well. And I never lost it, which is which is really special to me because I know a lot of people do lose it along the way or feel like they can't be that person because of the pressures that come with growing up or, you know, having to get a job that doesn't align with being able to do that work. So I have been very, very privileged to be able to continue to live and work my values. Figuring out your purpose kind of so early on in life is, I think, both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because you then are able to frame all your decisions and um, I guess your study path and where you're going to go in life based around that. But at the same time, it can make you rush through your childhood. And I say this as someone, I had a similar moment 
of figuring out exactly what I wanted to do at the age of seven. That's when I found out what a journalist was and I was just on that path ever since. But it makes you wish your childhood away. Did you have a similar experience? Yes, absolutely. I am very much the sort of person that no matter what age I was, all throughout my you know, childhood and then my teenage years, that really formative time, when I felt a sense of injustice or that something was wrong, I couldn't switch off from it. And I look back at, um, you know, my university years and uh, my, you know, mid-20s and all of the things that I was doing, which were, you know, very, I guess, um, important and important to me at the time. But because I was so focused, hyper-focused on being able to be that person and wanting to be able to fix things that I thought were wrong, I really rushed through a lot of the things that you'd probably ordinarily do. I mean, I finished high school and a lot of my friends took a gap year, but because at that time in my life, I was desperate to become a lawyer, like a lot of people do, got to become a lawyer and I'm going to be a lawyer for great things and, you know, change people's lives. And so I didn't take a gap year. And then I fast tracked my degree and I studied in the summer. And, you know, I did all of these things to get where I wanted to be as quickly as possible. And, you know, it is a blessing and a curse because it has all led me to where I am now. And I'm very lucky to be doing what I'm doing so young. But I missed a lot of the, you know, fun, normal, young people stuff along the way. <laughs> we sound like the same person. Yeah. <laughs> that is truly funny. And and this is kind of where I wanted to go next is the pathway from studying law and, and I believe you studied communications as yeah. well. And, yeah. and you've said politics was never part of the plan. So how did yeah. you end up here? Yeah, it absolutely wasn't. In fact, when I, the, the way that I got here really uh, is a few sort of, I think, intersecting moments of my life. I, through my, you know, many causes of um, wanting to, you know, change the world, I found the union movement and became very passionate about uh, the lives of working, working people. And I was working in the union movement and um, through that role that's sort of uh, adjacent to politics and you do like a lot of political lobbying and then I ended up in a political role working as chief of staff to the Animal Justice Party's first MP to ever get elected at the 2018 election and um, people used to ask me if I would do it myself and this is even up until about two years ago and I would be like, there's no way, there is absolutely no <laughs> way, I could never do it. I'm good at the background, I'm good at the strategy, I'm good at coming up with a plan, but I could never be the person. And then when I really got confronted with the idea of giving it a go, because I was really being encouraged, I would complain a lot about the um, lack of you know, women and young people in our political systems and us making decisions every day that affect their lives. And then people were like, well, you can only complain about it for so long until you're actually willing to do something about it. And when I got really confronted with the idea of giving it a proper go, I had to peel back the layers and think, what's stopping me from doing this? Is it that I really think I'm not capable or competent or is it because I'm scared? And I realised it was because I, I'm scared because politics and our parliament, I mean, I don't need to explain this everyone's seen the news over the past few years, they're inherently often unsafe places for women and um, public life is often an unsafe place for women and I didn't know 
if I could handle that. And I decided perhaps I could handle it. And not only that, I could do something to try and change that so other people feel like they can do the same thing as me. It's not just women, I feel, who, you, you know, you sit back and look at the example of other people who have social justice at the core of wanting to enter politics to yeah. make a difference. And I'm thinking here of Peter Garrett from Midnight Oil, who his experience in the Labor Party, it, it turned out to be terrible for yeah. him. And so when you look at people like that who have a huge profile, they're backed by a, a massive major party, you think to yourself, gosh, if they can't cut through the snake pit that is politics, then how have I got a chance? Were you warned off it by your family? Yeah, I wasn't warned off it by my family, but they made it very clear they were worried about me. And uh, I think that even though the, you know, bad experiences and pressure and criticism is a common experience for anyone that enters politics, I think they were particularly worried that I might experience it on a higher level um, by who I was, by my age, by my opinions. If I was to get elected, I was likely to have a crucial vote on the crossbench and therefore, you know, a lot more pressure. Um, But all the people in my life that mattered to me were incredibly supportive of me doing this, despite also being equally concerned. And I had a lot of wonderful support along the way. I've got some really great allies across the political spectrum. It's a shared experience, um, no matter what party you're in, having a fear about entering politics. And there's a lot of people that I had met along this journey that had great advice for me and continue to give me great advice. One of the things that you said in in your maiden speech, which I want to dive into a bit more in just a second, because it was a truly extraordinary speech and it's been viewed tons of times on YouTube. It's outstanding. One of the things you said right at the beginning was that the greatest threat to our planet is the belief someone else will save it. Who told you that? I actually had a friend say that to me when I was writing the speech uh, I was like, how do I how do I open this speech? You know, this is going to be the first words you say in the parliament. That's the moment where everyone's paying attention. You know, you get five, ten minutes in, people might lag off. And she said, you need to make this about um, not just yourself and your story, which is often what an inaugural speech is. It's about how is this about all of us? Um, and, you know, I wanted to remind everyone in the room, whether they have been there for 20 years or just got elected, um, why we were all there. Because I think it's very easy to lose your sense of purpose and to lose your way in politics. And I, I might be a bit of a, you know, bleeding heart, but I genuinely believe every single person that enters politics initially does it for the right reason. And some people lose that along the way. But ultimately we do this job as much as people, you know, love to hate politicians, which is fair enough. And, you know, holding us to account is important. We're all here because we want to do the right thing. And I wanted to, you know, remind people that that we're not there for ourselves. We're actually there for, you know, our communities and the planet and animals and, and everyone else. Do you still genuinely believe that now that you've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with politicians of all flavors? I get what you're saying. And I think In most cases, yes, most people are intrinsically motivated by good. 
but there's also a heck of a lot of ego in yeah. politics. <laughs> yeah, um, whether I still believe it now after, you know, just over six months in the job, I do believe that everyone has come here for the reasons that they might think are right. A lot of the time what they think is right is what I think is absolutely wrong, um, which is, you know, the the challenge and I guess that's why um, it's important for us to be able to, you know, um, do our jobs and to make our case and to, you know, um, stand up for what we believe in. But um, I do think that there are a lot of people uh, in politics and in parliament who it very quickly becomes about themselves and, um, you know, their own progression and their own progress and, you know, how can they climb their way to the top. And um, I am sort of in a very different position than a lot of people in here because a lot of people enter parliament with a major party and if they're in a safe seat, provided they can stay there, you know, they're not looking at four years. They're looking at maybe as long as they want to do it, whereas I know that it's really hard for to get re-elected as a crossbencher from a minor party. So I think it's, you know, lucky in many ways that I know that I've got four years and nothing else is guaranteed and I need to make the most of that opportunity. But not only that, consider every single day an absolute privilege. I think one of the big reasons your maiden speech has got so much traction and continues to get, you know, so many views on YouTube is it is one of the most authentic, vulnerable speeches that I've seen a politician or anyone for that matter give. You showed up completely as yourself. It wasn't just your choice of outfit. You could have chosen to wear long sleeves and covered up those beautiful tattoos of yours. You could have, but you didn't. You could have chosen to not share the stories that you shared yeah. in that speech, which were extraordinary. Uh, I'm going to go to one which has got a lot of media coverage. Yeah. It's where you said, my whole world stopped on the day my phone pinged with a notification that I'd been tagged on Facebook. Take us back to that moment and the journey yeah. that you've been on since. Yeah, so that was also one of the other fears that I had of entering politics is that I have a very different story to tell about how I ended up where I am and what I did prior to entering politics. And as you said, I showed up in a way that was very authentic because it was, it was important to me to not do it any other way. I didn't want to hide any part of myself in order to get here. So I had a story to tell that I knew, unfortunately, if I didn't tell it for myself it was probably inevitable that someone else was going to tell it for me and use it against me. So when I was at university um, in the first few years of my law degree and, you know, it's not an unusual story or a unique story, um, working out life out of school, you know, getting by, studying, paying bills, paying rent, I, um, I was struggling a little bit and I ended up um, taking up stripping as a job. And I'm often hesitant to say that I was struggling because I think it makes it sound like um, it was a decision that I made out of desperation. And, you know, it's important for me to acknowledge that sex work is legitimate work and a lot of people choose to do it because they, they want to do it as a job. But for me, it was um, I needed a way to make the money, um, 
you know, to continue my studies. As I said, I wanted to do them really quickly and it seemed like a common sense decision for me. But something that was very, very important to me at the time, as much as I wasn't ashamed about my job or embarrassed about it, I just didn't want people to know about it because I knew that it was not going to be my long-term plan. I was going to be a lawyer. I guess I didn't want um, the perception of doing that job, which was very differently viewed even, you know, 10, 11 years ago than it is now. I think we've seen a lot more acceptance of sex work in those industries. And it's really cool to see um, people that are on OnlyFans being able to, you know, really own and control the narrative when it comes to doing that work. But um, I wasn't given that luxury, unfortunately. So I um, did my best to keep what I was doing a secret, only my best friend knew really. But Um, I got very unlucky that someone at university found out about it, um, was able to get a photo of me. And I guess, you know, these days we probably see it as image-based abuse if it happened now, but they put the photo of me um, on Facebook um, and tagged me in it along with a lot of our university peers and then of course from then um, everyone had their hands on it. This photo of me that you know I never would have wanted anyone to see, that I never consented to, that I didn't want anyone to know about and then all of a sudden within you know a matter of moments my biggest secret was very public information and it was without a doubt the most difficult experience of my life. I have no shame in saying that I still haven't recovered from it. I probably never will and it fundamentally changed who I was as a person. I went from being a really outgoing sort of um, social university student involved in a lot of events and clubs, um, actively studying on campus, had a really good circle of people around me um, and I basically dropped it in, you know, a matter of hours. I was, you know, a shell of my former self. I uh, really struggled to keep up my studies. I went off campus. I lost a lot of my friends, my connections and um, I got a mental health diagnosis eventually of, of PTSD and had to go through the process of recovering from that and it just felt wrong for me to not acknowledge something that transformed my entire life in a bad way at the time, but I would never want to live through it again, but it taught me a lot. And it actually gave me that sense of justice that we're talking about before that, you know, it really brought to my attention um, the, I'd heard about this happening to women before. I mean, we used to call it revenge porn back in the day. We know that that's wrong now. It's image-based abuse, but I'd heard about that happening to people before and I didn't realise until it happened to me that it is, you know, it's life-threatening, you know. it's it, People take their lives over it, it destroys their careers, it changes who they are and um, I lived through it and I didn't want anyone else to. So that's why it was important for me to tell that story and to give that, put that face to and to humanise that experience because it's less common now but people still experience it. And um, I'm not ashamed of my past. So I thought I'm going to tell every other part of my life story. So I need to include this as well. What was the hardest part for you through that time? As I said earlier, I think the narrative around sex work has changed. But in the, you know, that sort of happened over the last decade. But I was seen, I think, as a bad person for doing that job by a lot of people. And 
it was incredible to me when I got elected um, and lovely actually now. I had a lot of people reach out to me and apologise for being a bystander at that time and for, you know, not um, not only sort of dropping me as a friend but not actively standing up against the person that did it. And something that's been hard for me, I guess, to watch was I went through university and stayed in my class, but I went online and I stopped, you know, talking to people and I basically only showed up to do my exams and didn't talk to anyone. It was really hard for me to watch the person who did that to me go on with their life and not understand the the damage that they caused to me. Um, and um, so a lot of people actually, the, the hardest part was losing, I think, my social connections, like when you're already feeling isolated and alone and going through a traumatic experience and then on top of that not having support around you to get you through it, that was the hardest part for me. The other thing that was really hard for me was that my my family actually didn't know that I was doing that and I did have intentions to tell them and then I had to tell them in a way where I didn't really have full autonomy and I wasn't fully comfortable of that yet and I felt forced into a lot of conversations that I wasn't yet ready to have. But I was struggling so much that I felt that I had to tell some of the people that I knew were unconditionally there for me because a lot of people weren't because I got to the point where I felt like I didn't want to live anymore. And that, that really scared me. And I knew that I had, I, I was forced into having those conversations because it really got to the point, I, I guess essentially it sounds maybe dramatic to say now, but my life basically depended on the people that were close to me knowing what I was going through. So, yeah, it was it was just a complete experience of losing all sense of autonomy or control over my own life and not only that, my own body and, um, you know, sex work is very much, a, I think, a, a statement in bodily autonomy but it's your story to tell, not anyone else's. And I, I felt like I really lost something that was almost empowering to me became completely disempowering. Hmm. If you could go back in time, I mean, the girl that you were then, if she could see you now, she would, her <laughs> brain would explode. Uh, yeah. what, would you, what would you tell her? Yeah, I often think about this because... I always, I got to a point in my life where I knew things were going to get better um, and I could see the light at the end of the tunnel when for a long time it felt like there wasn't going to be one. But I never would. I, I think that, you know, Georgie then would not believe that Georgie now could exist and I would love to tell myself back then that it's not only going to be okay that you are going to use this experience you have gone through and make the lives of other people that have gone through a similar thing better and easier. You're going to change the narrative around these things and you're going to normalise something that you have done and create opportunities for other people because that has been one of the most profound things since my election. The amount of people that have reached out to me and said, I have the same story as you um, and I've always felt like I couldn't accomplish my dreams because of it or I'm a former sex worker or I'm a former stripper and 
I love politics, but I always thought it wouldn't be a place for me. I reckon I get a message saying something like that every single day. People around the world are finding me and and telling me these stories and to know that if I achieve nothing over the next four years, which I hope I do, but to just know that I have, I guess, broken down a bit of a barrier, that's so meaningful and important to me and I would never choose to live through that experience again, but knowing that I have been able to completely flip it around and take back control is very, very special to me. And I would have loved to know in those darkest moments that it was going to happen because I think it would have made it a little bit easier. They say that it's not necessarily what happens to you, but how you respond to it. And even though you're in this amazing, empowered place that you are in right now, your, your mental health is in a much better place than it was, you're still not immune to attacks from anonymous douchebags. Uh, Talk us through um, this International Women's Day. You wore a dress with some of the online criticisms and slurs that have been made against you. Um, What does it feel like when you read that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's awful. And the terrible thing about it is it was completely unsurprising to me. I I knew that it was something I was essentially signing up for when I got elected rightly or wrongly. And I knew that I would probably be getting it in a way that was much more intense and severe because of the story. I just told people see me as a very open target. And unfortunately, some people still see me as someone who doesn't belong here or doesn't deserve to be here. And I always love to say, I very much believe politics should be representative of society. It should be made up of society and things like having a formal education or a certain amount of work experience, they actually shouldn't matter. But what's really interesting to me is that I'm actually a lot more, if there was a rule book for qualifications to be a politician, I'm actually probably a lot more qualified than a lot of people in here. But the one thing that they love to focus on is the fact that I used to be a stripper. And that makes me a very open target. And um, yeah, so it, it makes me feel, I get asked this a lot. And the honest answer is, it doesn't affect me in the way that it used to. But that's not a good thing to to receive online abuse and gendered criticism on such a level that it doesn't emotionally affect you anymore is a sign to me of how much of a big problem it is. Because going on the internet or opening your emails and reading someone saying something awful about you should affect you. And it doesn't really anymore. Um, But the fact of the matter is, I know that it's wrong and that's why I call it out. And as much as I've learned to put up with it, I know that it's not something I should have to put up with. And I know that there would be, you know, women or gender diverse people or other vulnerable members of society that might look at that and go, I would love to be a politician, but I could never put up with what Georgie puts up with and that's why I'm not going to do it. And that's why I'm so determined to stop it. And it's why I call it out. People 
get online and say those things to me in the hopes that I'll be quiet, in the hopes that I'll be small, in the hopes that it'll affect me. And I figure that if I can take that power away from them and say, I'm never going to give you what you want, then it might actually stop them from doing it. And, um, you know, you've probably seen I put some of the comments I receive online and initially I used to hide their names or, you know, make them anonymous and I just thought if someone's willing to get on the internet and say this to a 30-year-old woman um, and I I don't owe them the right to privacy, you know, they're going to put this out there about me I have every right to call it out. And through doing that, I actually think I've put a bit of a protection racket around me and other people because um, people are scared that they're going to get called out for it. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) All right, let's get into politics. So let's let's imagine that you do only have four years. What is what is the number one thing you would like to change? What's the number one thing you would like to achieve? Yeah, so I got asked this as I got elected and my answer is I really want to see a recreational ban, uh, a ban on recreational duck shooting in Victoria. And the reasons for that are is it's an issue that's very, very close to my heart. It's a campaign that I've been working on for over 10 years now as a, as a volunteer and then I've picked it up as um, one of my campaigns since I got elected Um We love to call Victoria the progressive state and I'm very, very proud to live here. We do a lot of amazing things that are really leading in terms of social reform, but we're quite behind on a number of issues that relate to animals, which is obviously my job. It blew my mind that duck shooting, duck hunting is still a thing. Like, what are we, living in Bridgerton? What's going on? So New South Wales, Queensland and Western Australia have all banned it. Uh, To put it into perspective, Western Australia banned it in 1992 and that was the year that I was born so I'm really keen to see that happen um you know their wildlife their native animals it's it's a very different um scenario to other forms of shooting it's done for recreation it's just it's seen as a sport and I'm really hoping we can tie that up um but as I said as well um I have a lot of goals on on policy and legislative change that's in line with my party and my values but I'm also just really keen to help change how politics looks and feels and acts and the authenticity that we can bring and um, I guess changing the rhetoric and the narrative around who or what a politician is. And that makes me very, very excited for the future because we're heading into a unique space where more millennials and Gen Z in future elections will be voting than ever before. And I really hope that throughout my four years, young people might look at me and think that they could have a go at it as well. So I have, you know, policy ideals and I have, I guess, broader um, ideas about how we can um, make our political systems more representative of society. And a bit more fun, right? A bit more human and a bit more relatable. Well, congratulations again on being elected to Parliament and thank you so much for sharing so much of your personal story, not just with everyone but um, with us on The Weekend Briefing. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. It was great to come on. Our guest this week was Georgie Purcell, the 30-year-old MP for Northern Victoria in the Victorian Legislative Council. Now, if you'd like to know more about Georgie's work, you can go to vic.com 
animaljusticeparty.org or throw her a follow on Instagram. She posts heaps of great content. Uh, A bit of a reminder, if you were triggered by anything we talked about in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and there is always someone ready to take your call. Now it's time for the weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. Thanks, Katrina. And yes, it's just me this week. Jamila will be back next week with, I'm sure, burnt butter recipes. But for the moment, let's get cracking. So my first recommendation this week, it's a really important one. This week is NAIDOC week and the theme for 2023 is for our elders. So NAIDOC week ends tomorrow on Sunday. Now, my recommendation, I know I've recommended this one before, but It's such a good podcast, the Black Matters podcast hosted by Teela Reid and MC. It's just an amazing listen and it explores First Nation issues from a First Nations perspective, which I think is very important for this week being NAIDOC week. If you want to understand more about the upcoming referendum for a First Nations voice to parliament, for example, there are a bunch of great chats and resources there. There's also just chats about First Nation issues in a whole which I think, you know, as a non-Indigenous person, it is so important that we listen to these chats by First Nations people. Another great thing that you can do this week is that you can pay the rent. So you can head to paytherent.net.au and it tells you everything about why paying the rent is important, what it is, what it's about on their website. But here's it in a nutshell. So why pay the rent? Essentially, it is because Australia is founded on stolen land. And by paying rent as a non-Indigenous person, it is a step forward towards this acknowledgement and a way towards justice, truth, equality and liberation for First Nations people. So that is another really amazing, important thing that you can do this week if you're a non-Indigenous person, just like me. Head to paytherent.net.au, check it out, have a read, and you can donate as little or as much as you can. My second recommendation this week is very, very, very lowbrow. (laughs) It is to check out the different Barbie collaborations for the Barbie movie. If you don't know by now, I am obsessed with Barbie. I love Barbie movie. I have loved it for as long as I can remember. But these collaborations are wild. I have not seen a marketing or PR for anything like this in a while. There are so many articles about it out there and I'll pop one in our show notes to have a read through, but get ready. Okay, here are some of the collaborations. We've got Airbnb. Airbnb have collabed with Barbie. So Airbnb have a Barbie Malibu dream house that you can actually stay in and it is wild. It looks like an actual dream house. That's probably my most favourite collab that I've seen, but there are so many more. There's PlayStation collabs that comes with its own little dream house for your PlayStation console to go in. There's a toothbrush collaboration with Moon Toothbrushes, so it's this fancy toothbrush and it's all hot pink, of course. There's also ice cream brands. There's a nail polish collab. There's a bunch of different clothing brands, as per usual, including Bloomingdale's, and there's also some iconic roller skates that literally they look like they just came out of the box of a Barbie box. They are so fluoro. And it's also the PR that Margot Robbie is doing right now with her outfits. Insane. She's been on this PR media frenzy. She was just in Australia last week, I think, 
And the outfits are iconic, recreating like vintage doll outfits, the Chanel pieces, everything is just on point and it is a wow. This PR team is working overtime. So in total, there are over 30 Barbie collabs. And guys, just remember, the movie is not even out yet. The Barbie movie is not even out and all of this is happening. It doesn't come out until the 20th of July in Australia, which you know I will be at. But that's it. That's all I have. My recommendations for the weekend list. Jamila will be back next week, but let's jump back to Katrina. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Katrina Blowers, and we are all sending Jam our warmest wishes and hope she recovers soon from COVID. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Weekend Briefing. Until then, you can reach us via our socials. Listener.